This is verse 11 of Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. There's one little verse left on with its own paragraph, kind of segues into chapter 3. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. This is God's word. Let's bow once again in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for another Sunday and for each other uh, to sit into church and to listen to you speak together. Lord, would you open our mind and our eyes and our ears? Would you hold our attention? Lord, would you prepare us for the week to come? But Lord, for right here and now, we, we ask that you help us understand and obey what we're considering, that being your word. And we ask this in your precious holy name. Amen. Well, what we've covered so far in chapter 2, just to recap for a moment, uh, to give us kind of a running start, uh, we, we warned ourselves as we read through this that this chapter minds our business. It's going to get into where we live and what we do and what we say and lay out its expectations. Uh, we talked a few weeks ago about the older men as they're addressed here in this chapter. You are to be mature and dignified. Older women, you are to be reverent and teach the younger women. We, we spent more time on that. Young women, you're to be good wives and mothers. And then young men, it's simple enough. You're to control yourselves. That's what the scriptures say. Pastors, you're to be a good teacher and a model for others and employees, as far as it fits the context of this passage of Scripture, you're to be conscientious and honest. But then we all learn today, this is addressed to each of us, to renounce evil, live godly, righteous, and disciplined lives right here and right now. Uh, we can't live in yesterday. Tomorrow isn't here yet. Uh, when it says in this present age, that's the Scripture's way of just bundling everything involving culture and history all into one place. There's where you are. That's where you live as a Christian. Now, we've said this before. We should say it again. This is not a listing of possible categories for extra credit. Oh, this is an exceptional list. I, if I can pull this off, I can be an exceptional Christian. Sad to say, this is the standard expectation if Christ has saved your soul, he calls you his child. You call yourself a Christian. This is just like a passing grade. There's no extra credit here. <laughs> and the bar is set so high, it's virtually unattainable. We'll, we'll need the Lord's help for it. But this is what he asked. Remember, this is Apostle Paul writing to a fella in Crete. His name is Titus. He's been tasked with ordering the churches and helping them in what they're supposed to be doing for the glory of God. And this is what he tells them. So the point of it all, this listing of character traits that should be true of every child of God, uh, these are people who know the truth, live the truth, 
and having done so may perhaps be able to lead other people to the truth. And the point he's making, it's going to be abundantly clear by the time we get to the end. If the world is ever going to know the stuff that we've been singing about this morning, that Jesus saves. And what we mean by saying Jesus saves is that he can change lives, that he's still in the business of changing lives from the parts of ourself that we would be ashamed for anyone to know. You know, the, the most agonizing process that a human being could probably ever be subjected to is if we just kind of figured out how to read your mind for the last week and then put it on one of these screens as everyone came in. That's how we check ourselves to know we're not perfect, far from it. Uh, we need help. And if the world's going to know that Jesus saves, they're going to need evidence of it, that he has changed people in the past. But if the people who say they're Christians don't act like Christians or talk like Christians, behave like Christians, think like Christians, even though we can't read each other's minds, it should show, then how in the world is the world going to know that that isn't just a rumor a lovely thought, a nice Christmas or Easter card, but really I'm, I'm skeptic. No, we're going to have to live it if other people are going to know it. That's the point of this passage we just read. Um, we've talked about this. It's kind of the, the heading for the whole series. We behave because we believe. Because of what we believe out of this book, there's a certain way we behave. Uh, our thinking changes our living or our actions. Believing is behaving. So we're to act like Christians because we're Christians. We can behave like Christians because Jesus changed our lives. And we're expected to behave like this again because Jesus changed our lives. Now when we went through this about five years ago, uh, I had in my previous notes an illustration here. I told you then when I was a boy on different occasions, my father would say a certain thing. Usually it had to do with him putting his hand on the back of the headrest and turning around in the car, looking in the back seats at his three children. There would be four, but Joseph was way later. It was myself, my brother Jacob, my sister Kelly. And uh, usually we were in that order in the seat and in that station wagon, there were clear lines in the upholstery that let us know which was our space and if we could stay in the space without anyone touching each other. We might pay attention long enough to notice he's putting his hand on the headrest. He's turning around and he's about to say, before we get out of the car and go into the restaurant or the people's house or the church or whatever, be on your best behavior. Why? Because it's extra credit. Are we going to get ice cream if we're on our best behavior? No, lightning might not strike if we're on our best behavior. <laughs> this is what he expects. This is what it means to be a Mooneyham child. We behave when we're in public and in private, but especially in public <laughs> because people are watching and dad wears a suit on Sunday and he doesn't need kids running around acting like what he preaches is all garbage when they get to the house, right? So when we grew up, he would tell us the same thing less often, but at kind of key strategic situations, I don't know, transitional phases, like when he's just unloaded all your worldly possessions into a dormitory and he's about to drive off and go home and leave you there. He wouldn't say be on your best behavior. That's what it meant, 
but he would say it differently. He would say, remember who you are. And that would be as little as saying, your last name's Mooneyham. If you mess this up, it comes back on me. But it also means you're a child of God. We believe those things, so we act accordingly. Don't forget who you are. It's not just Mooneyham's writing on this. It's the whole witness of God's credibility in heaven while you live with his name here on earth. So think of this passage as Paul the Apostle's way of saying, remember who you are and don't forget it. And with that in mind, let's go back through what we read starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So in that verse, it's got a lot of moving parts and we'll break it apart and look at it. But Paul's basically saying by describing a God that saves. There's this grace that showed up and bringing with it was salvation. Your life has changed. You're not estranged from God anymore, having disobeyed his rules. You've now had someone step in and repair that relationship and it's like it was at the beginning. Uh, It's grace... That's really the, what it's described as, but salvation is the, the process. And the message is clear. Jesus can save. Uh, it's really hard to miss. This is three chapters, a tiny little book. Two times in verse or chapter 1, in verse 3, uh, we read God our Savior. In verse 4, God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Then in chapter 2, twice again in verse 10, God our Savior Verse 13, we read that a moment ago. Great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in the next couple of weeks, chapter 3, verse 4, God our Savior again. And in verse 6, Jesus Christ our Savior. I think Paul believes that Jesus can save. He calls him our Savior. That's his his function. And why is it important? Back to the idea of believing means behaving. So if the message of the gospel is going to get out to the world and Jesus through that message is going to reel them in and change their lives, um, it's really a problem if those who call themselves Christians don't act like it. We're making the same point again, uh, drilling a little, little bit deeper. Now, the word Paul uses to describe uh, the starting point of this life-changing salvation is grace. Uh, You see it there in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. You remember the definitions of grace and mercy? They're kind of similar. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. You don't deserve it. You don't deserve grace. Uh, That's a good thing that you're not worthy of. Uh, Mercy is not getting something that you do deserve. If someone's done this crime and then uh, someone is responsible to press charges or not and the person says no I'm not worried about it I'm not pressing charges that's mercy they can have the right to remember uh, the the Karate Kid movie where at the end you know he raises his hand in honor of uh, all that stuff break the dude's neck who tried to kill him but he honks his nose instead that was mercy in that system dude deserved it right? But he didn't give it to him. It's forbearance too. I'm in the right to do this. It's only fair, but I don't do it. So if kids are running around the room, they've been warned, settle down, you're going to knock something over and break it, but they don't knock it off and they do break something. 
Now, there's consequences for breaking something. That would be punishment. But, hey, there's mercy. I'm not going to spank you for breaking the lamp. Let's get in the car and go get that ice cream, right? That's grace. They don't deserve the ice cream. They deserve the spanking. They don't get the spanking. They get the ice cream. So, for the grace of God has appeared, we've sinned against him. We don't deserve saving, but there's grace here, something we don't deserve. And this grace that shows up brings salvation for all people. Uh, what, what, what does that mean? Well, you've got this favor that's undeserved to needy sinners, and he's going to deliver them and transform them. And then there's this business of, of an appearance, for the grace has appeared. Now, I don't expect we got any Greek scholars in here, or even people that are familiar with the language perhaps. But in the Greek, and that's what all this was in before it was translated to English, um, the word appear is, is what we use to describe the dawn or the daybreak. And what we translate this into with other languages uh, is the word epiphany. You ever had an epiphany? That's where you get something that you didn't get before. Ever have something dawn on you? That's where you should have known it, but now it's dawned on you. I see it. So what Paul is saying is this grace that was talked about from all the way back in the Garden of Eden and all through these dealings with the Hebrew people and you, you think of uh, the Ten Commandments and this law to keep them all straight so that one day he can fix man deep down where man's most broken and that's in his heart. But we really haven't been able to tie up all the loose ends and, and figure this thing out until this man, Jesus, appears on the stage of history. It's called Christmas. And he pays for the sins of the world at Easter. Two biggest days if you go to church is Christmas and Easter. Well, that appearance, that epiphany, what was once hidden is now visible. What heretofore was behind a veil of sorts. And if you think about it, how would people on this planet ever put together something to talk about for thousands of years and dress up on each Sunday and, and rehearse if Jesus didn't come to this earth and do what he did, being who he was, how would we ever wrap our heads around it? Um, when they say in John's gospel that he took on flesh, that's exactly what he did. So there's really no other way to solve this riddle without the appearance of this grace. It's talking about the man, the historical Jesus, who was the biblical Savior. Um, and then the grace of God appeared for what reason? To bring salvation. And the appearance of God's grace brought salvation for who? All people. Does that mean that we're just all automatically saved? No, you kind of got to worry about, like, I don't know, Hitler. I don't think he was saved. Um, it's available for all people. Anyone can have it. But it involves your repentance and this massive tiny thing called faith. It's not impossible, but it's something. There's something on your end to receive it. It's not automatic. 
And then this appearance of God bringing salvation available to all people doesn't stop there. Look in verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness. So uh, the training or teaching, depending on your translation, is, it goes back to that business of salvation and its grace. Um, so the grace that changes your life and saves you actually trains and teaches you to do what? Renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. So not only does the grace that wants to save you and is available to save you, it intends to save you and not just a fire insurance policy. You know what I mean by that? Get out of hell free card. (laughs) That's just the starting point. It's uh, less like myself today and more like Jesus today for the rest of your life. It's a process. Uh, it's, it's called training. Training involves lots of reps, lots of learning, lots of paying attention, lots of writing, lots of reports and quizzes and tests and exams and all that stuff, right? It doesn't happen in an afternoon, much less instantaneously. And the specifics are given here to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That sounds bible doesn't it? living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So if grace is the teacher, that's what it teaches. And basically, uh, I heard it put this way, and I thought, that's a great way to sum it up. Basically, dump your old life and live a new one. Uh, there's other verses for that. 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And it's a good place to ask the question... Are you as interested in the teaching work of grace and salvation as much as you are the saving work of grace? Because it sounds like it's one and the same. Though I went to school and went to church with a lot of young people who, if given the card, um, avoid hell, check yes or no. And some of the sermons were just basically boiled down to that. Hey, your life's a wreck. Turn over a new leaf. Say yes to Jesus and, and knock it off, and you don't have to go to hell. There's more to it than that, but I've never met anybody that wants to go to hell. Now, you can sell records singing about it because all your friends are down there, right? I really don't think that's what they really want. And if they do, they don't understand it the way the Bible describes it. So I think everybody universally is a check yes to heaven, avoid hell. But then there's this process of, okay, Jesus has died on the cross for you to credit you access to heaven. But after he does that, he's going to work on your life and chip away as if to take a rock with a diamond in the middle of it. And by the end, have it all polished up and shiny. Um, He's going to change your life. That's usually what most people aren't aren't in for. A message of salvation. Hey, fix all my problems? Yeah, but no, look more like Jesus and less like you? Uh, I don't know. That guy uh, is loved by many, but that guy's hated by most. Why do I want to be like Jesus? Well, it sounds like this is the process. 
Teaching us to what? Training us to what? Renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So there's a positive and a negative. The negative is uh, renouncing ungodliness. That kind of clears the field for the positive things. And uh, if you like marking your Bibles and you're making notes, you could use the words inward, outward, and upward to describe those three, self-controlled, upright, and godly. Because self-control is really an inward thing. That's inside your head where nobody else gets to look and where you have the levers and you can control yourself or you can't. Um, Soberly might be your translation. It's back to that idea of those substances we talked about, which the Bible says is given to us for our joy, but it also is a mocker. So you need to know the, the line, right? The idea is either you're self-controlled or you're not. You you just do whatever you want, whenever you want, no matter who you run over in order to do it. Or, I believe this book, so I have the word no in my vocabulary, and I can use it. It might cost me, but it's the right thing to do, which is its own reward. That's the difference between it. Uh, So that's an inward thing. Then an outward, that's upright, righteously. Faithfully fulfilling all the man's demands of truth and justice in our relationship to others. This one might actually be as tough, though it might not seem like it. But how many of you feel like being nice every day to people? Especially when you're like busy and they want to come over and help and that's the last thing you need. Right? Or let's just say that they're a jerk on purpose. You still have to be nice to them. Um, it depends on whether or not this life's all about you or you're a child of God that believes in God and kind of in some ways it might reflect on him how you react to that jerk on purpose or the person that's trying to help but isn't. <laughs> but you fill in the blanks. This is life. Do, do you like being happy and nice and charitable and forgiving and hospitable all the time? Because that's the way Jesus was and he's saying we should live upright lives. That means Don't tell lies. Don't exaggerate the truth. Um, Treat your brother like you would want to be treated yourself, and and on and on. Again, almost an impossible task, but it's outward. That's our public self. And then upward. This is godly. This is between you and the Lord, and it has to do with reverence, fully devoted to God in reverence and in loving obedience, spending time with Him in prayer, reading the book He Went to pains to leave you, called the Bible. Um, and then take all that, because it's, it's easy stuff, right? And do it now in this culture we live in. For some, they might go, <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, if, if this was the, even the, I don't know, the 90s or the 80s or the 70s or the 60s or 50s. No, 40s. No, 30s. I can be a good Christian in the 30s. Not now. Or whenever you want to say that was easier to live that way when people acted that way. No, in this present age, and it works for whatever age. Last week, I was talking to someone uh, about how crazy the culture is, right? And I remembered something uh, my dad had said, and I looked it up. And it was when Charlie Manson was being interviewed. And the question was put to him, is Charlie Manson crazy? Of course, he just laughs and says, yeah, yeah, I'm crazy. I'm the Mad Hatter. But I was crazy when crazy meant something. 
Now everybody's crazy. <laughs> like he had the, the, the edge on, you know, crazy stuff. Now he's, he's gone now, but I wonder what he would say uh, now. Is, is this crazy like you said crazy was or meant something? I don't know. Maybe we've redefined what crazy is. It's the new normal, perhaps. But verse 13, here, here's what we do in this present age. While we're saying no to some things and yes to other things, because others are watching and we want them to know the Jesus who saved us too. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I have to pull this thing apart and show you what's going on here. Uh, We had verse 11 where there was the appearing of grace that brought salvation. The word in verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, it's the same word. It's, it's that epiphany word. But in verse 11, that has come and passed. There was a time in Bethlehem, a star was in the sky. People were, were looking for the star and unsolved this mystery and uh, it came together with so many other things and prophets and, and it looked as if this guy's like perfect to be the guy. And then when he grows up, he starts healing people, walking on water, and then is raised from the dead. So we've, we've got our man. He's come, but then he left. That was his appearance. Well, this one says we're waiting for another appearance. The glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The glory is the different part because he didn't come gloriously. He came and was born in a manger, not uh, the best hospital. He was uh, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We hid our hate faces from him. Uh, those are all the prophecies. This guy is basically a nobody. He's a carpenter's son. And if you look at his ministry, though he changed a lot of people's lives, the public vote was to kill him, crucify him, and the Romans carried it out. So you'd look at his whole life as, a, as an absolute failure. Glory was not what you call that. But the Bible tells us he's coming back. Having conquered sin, he's the one who gets to be the judge, not because he's perfect, but because he knows what the punishment tastes like. He took it for the rest of us, And when that is done, he'll be crowned king of kings of Lord of lords. He's in glory at that point. That hasn't happened. We're waiting on that. There's been one epiphany that's in the past. There's an epiphany coming in the future. So the same Jesus who'd appeared on the stage of history briefly and then disappeared will one day reappear. And verse 13 gives us this second epiphany or a second dawning. He appeared once in grace, giving us something we didn't deserve, and he'll reappear in glory as uh, our Lord and Savior. So what it says here about our blessed hope, you know, people talk about heaven. It's not now. We can't call here and now this blessed hope where we're being told to renounce ungodliness. Ungodliness can't 
exist in heaven on earth, the blessed hope. Uh, the world's too bad off. There's too much sadness. There's too much injustice. There's, there's too much that's just not fair. Um, there's too many goodbyes. There's, there's too many tears. There's, there's too much pain. How can we convince anyone that this is all there is? Just clean up a bit and go to church and say these bible sounding things and you'll have everyone fooled, but you're still going to cry and suffer and make mistakes and sin. There's no way we can convince anybody of that. Uh, it's because we're not supposed to. We're living between the two epiphanies where there's nothing but faithful living and waiting for it to be over. Um, I heard it put this way long ago, and I think it was the best way because saying two epiphanies, I can just imagine trying to talk to somebody on an airplane about two epiphanies. Think of it as the already and the not yet. The grace of God's already shown up. He lived his life. He died on a cross for your sins, bringing salvation. That's over. That, that's the already. It's already done. Uh, salvation isn't you really doing anything. It's just understanding, admitting, and saying, yes, I want what's already been done for me. And be forgiven. But then there's a not yet. The not yet is eternity. And most of us, unless the Lord comes back like he says he will, but it's been 2,000 years and he hasn't yet, he may be another 2,000 years. We don't know because he said he's not telling. But most of us will, will die in order to get to eternity. Uh, the older you get, the more that that makes sense and uh, it becomes more real when you're a young person. Uh, people make that up. Nobody dies, right? But that second epiphany, that not yet, is out there somewhere. And it sounds like we're asking people to look in two directions, look past and look forward at the same time. That doesn't even make sense. But as far as our Bibles go, um, it's necessary. That's how we make sense of it. Price for sin's been paid for, but the Lord's waiting for people to receive it. And it's our job to tell others about it. The reason why he hadn't come back is because there's still people to be saved. Uh, and even when you say that in your brain, you're thinking, ah, that just sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? Crazy good. It's grace. If you believe this, aren't you glad he didn't come before you believed it? Right? He's waiting for the one that you love to believe it. Right? That Jesus himself was the greatest of all gifts is absolutely true. But what it took to correct what happened in the Garden of Eden is what we look at in verse 14. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, who live like him. So if you're tracking with the outline, um, in verse 11, for the grace of God hath appeared, that's, that's the already. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, that's the in-between right now. Last part of verse 13, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. That's the not yet. And then verse 14 is the forever after when that is done. He's going to have purified for himself a people for his own possession. 
Now, if you've been around and you know your Bibles enough, you're saying, okay, in the Garden of Eden, he made everything, two people there. It was all good. There was a tree of knowledge and good and evil. Don't eat that. If you do, you've sinned against me, and it's all a mess. But before it was all a mess, it was good and it was perfect. They lived in paradise, and they lived with the God who made them. That's where we're going back to. But instead of God dropping the hammer on all those that have sinned and cursing them with death as he promised, he just put his own son in that spot, crushed him instead, so you don't have to. That's what it means, who gave himself for us. To redeem us from what? Sin and lawlessness. To what? Purify himself a people for his own possession. The way it intended really to begin with. So to redeem us all, to free us from the assertion of self-will, defiance of God's standard, that's really the essence of sin. That's God made us, and we say, you know what? I don't even know if I believe that. I don't think it's true. I don't need him. I'll do what I want. Well, if God really made you, you can understand why he wouldn't like that you don't care about him and can do without him, right? That, that's the sin part. That's the lawlessness he's going to redeem. Hey, I made you for eternity. Spend time with me. Um, I gave you a brain. And I gave you the ability to run your own life, and I love you enough to let you do that. But the relationship's not going to work if you're going to continue to walk away from me forever. In fact, at the end, if that's what you want, I'll let you have it. And we're done. But if you want to come back, it'll require certain things because I'm a just moral God. You're not. And I told you if you broke the rules to start with, I'd take back the life I gave you. But instead, he decides, I'll let my son represent the whole world. All their sins goes on his shoulders. He pays for it all. The only thing you got to do is repent and believe that the whole thing is true. That is what this passage is all about. To purify for himself a people of his own possession. Now, C.S. Lewis wrote this. I don't know if you're all familiar with C.S. Lewis. Uh, maybe you remember uh, Disney took some of his writings and made some movies out of them called The Chronicles of Narnia. That was his fiction stuff. He wrote this at one point. We get the redemption part. We need to be saved. But most of the time I think we have the bigger problem with the purify for himself a people for his own possession. He's going to clean us up. Lewis says this, Imagine yourself as a house, a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. It needs some work. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house than from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here, putting up an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace he intends to live in himself. 
Most of the time, our thoughts of what God wants out of us is far too small. He's got much bigger plans. And I don't know if we think through this type of thing. Through it all, and especially the stuff that hurts, that on the other end of the hurt, you find yourself in a better situation, stronger, maybe more charitable, more forgiving, less of a jerk. I use jerk a lot because us guys understand that. Um, he's, he's, he's purifying you to be a possession all his own. We get bent out of shape because we think, who is this guy who thinks he can tell us what to do? Um, when really he's the guy who really had far greater plans for us, we interfered with them to our own disaster. And he's trying to put it back the way it was to start with, which is better than we could ever imagine. But we push back at it, same as when we go to the doctor. No, 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 no I don't need that. Um, or our wife or our husband or our mother who, who knows there's more in there that, that could be so much better, but we get in our own way. Uh, he's making us this purified possession for himself for a place in time that we haven't seen and don't understand and have no reference point for uh, that's designed to his liking. And the best way I know to make sense of it is it's where you belong. I mean, he made a garden called Paradise to put man and woman in and, and you watch the world over. What do people do if they have time enough and enough creativity and enough budget? We build for ourselves gardens, don't we? It's like we're trying to get back. We call that paradise. Certain parts of this planet that you just look at it. My goodness, if can people really live there? And that's just a snapshot. That's, that's, that's still not exactly what he had in, in mind. And I think it almost takes a whole lifetime. I, I know... With children who grow up in church, I was one. You, you sit in the floor and you listen to the teacher and they got the flannel graph and they tell you all the Bible stories. And it doesn't take long before you can understand, okay, um, there's good, there's bad. I should avoid the bad. I should try to be good. And there was this guy who was good all the time. And it, it, really, there's no, nothing else in your brain but that these mean people hated him and they talked to the Romans with the funny hats into hanging him on a cross and killing him and somehow that guy loves me and uh, he can help me in that idea of not being bad and being good now that's just a child's snapshot there's gospel there but it's not quite the whole picture and as you grow up through your adolescence it, it, youth group and parents and everybody else seem to really hammer the, the negative side of that list don't do this It'll ruin your life, and a lot of it from older people. They're just trying to keep you from making the mistakes they made, right? And you try your best to get through the obstacle course known as adolescence and college, and you start to develop a sense of shame because a lot of those things you're told not to do, you just have to touch that hot stove, don't you, to learn that it's hot. Some kids don't. Some kids have a brother who does it all wide out in the open and he gets all the attention and you can watch and strategically 
Do the same thing in your brain, but not in public where anybody could say. And they call you the good son when really not. Your head's just as rotten as the bad son. By the time you grow up enough to maybe be married and have some children, you're already on your radar paying attention to the stuff you're supposed to do list. Not just the negative don't do, but the to do. How am I going to position this young one for success in life? What do I build into their life to to make a go at it? What am I supposed to do? I, I know what not to do anymore. I did it and it hurt really bad. What do I do to make it not hurt? How can I make this make sense? So it's all, give me that. I'll read this. I'll try that. And uh, some of it works. Most of it doesn't. Most exercise equipment turns into coat racks and blanket holders and dust things or out at the street, right? Good intentions, but it just, where's, where's what I was looking for? People write songs about that too. Still haven't found what I'm looking for. And then by the time those kids are looking you in the face, you know, your work at helping them is, is either succeeded but without explanation or it's failed, but still it'll be years before you know that too. And then you start finding yourselves in places like out here under a tent saying goodbye to people you really love. And it takes you a long time to really sort all that out because it's a massive change. And a lot of things have changed. The stuff you liked as a kid, you, you might not be able to go eat there anymore or visit there anymore or buy it anymore. It just, you're at the stage in life where things are changing, you don't like it, you're starting to feel curmudgeon coming up in you. And the people that you loved aren't there to help. And for the first time in your life, after spending most of it trying to figure out where you belong, it's starting to dawn on you that you might not belong here at all. And if you know your Bible and you believe this stuff, even if it's a weak and flimsy and fledgling faith, it might start to happen. You start longing for a place you've never been before. And the idea that a guy has known you all along through the good days, the bad guys, came here to this earth to die to cover all that because you can't help it. He knows that he loves you anyway and promises to fix all the loose ends in this life that you seem to be racking up at an alarming pace, even as a good person. But I just, I can't, there's too much undone. The idea that that guy authored the whole thing None of it is an accident and that he's busy preparing a place where you've always belonged and forever will belong. That starts to sound like exactly what I need. But it takes a process, doesn't it? It takes some wandering around. It takes finding out that every time you've walked, you turn around, that guy somewhere, it's the guy on TV or it's the person I know or the neighbor or whatever, but how come I can't get around this or away from it? Because he's calling your name. Remember how we talked about that? Nobody can say your name like maybe your mama can say your name. And there are people that keep 
voicemails on their phone so they can hear that person who isn't around anymore say their name? What about the guy who gave you a name that nobody knows but him? The Bible says that. One of these days I'm going to hear my name like I've never heard my name that I didn't even know I had. At this point, I'm rambling. I could not be more convinced that this stuff is true. But I have to tell you, there's been several times this year where I wondered how it makes sense. I don't need to make sense of it all. If I believe it, he makes sense of it all. He'll get me there in the end. Until then, we wait. That gospel that saved us trains us how to say no to the things we should say no to and yes to the things we should say yes to while we wait for the next epiphany and try to be winsome to those who are searching too. There's a lot of different ways you might figure out the big questions in life. Where did we come from? Where are we going? Is this an accident? There's only one that answers or addresses all of it, and that'd be this book. That's my opinion as someone trying to make sense of life from the position of middle-agedness. I believe it. Do you? You got to figure it out. You're smart people. I think that's enough. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for another day in church. Another time to sing about grace and salvation, to look in our Bibles and hear Paul the Apostle talk to Titus about what he's supposed to teach the church about grace and salvation. Lord, to maybe put up with someone musing and wondering how to make sense out of this life and finding it in the pages of Scripture, not being by any means an expert, but the questions are answered in concept. If we have eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord, would you give us what we need today and enough of it to give away? Lord, we know we're selfish and patient people on the inside. But Lord, surround us with people with love and care and compassion. And Lord, may someday we be able to say, it was your fault. If there's anything good, we blame it on you. And we ask all this in your precious and holy name. Amen.